VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Welcome to the Tech Meme Ride Home for Tuesday, October 23rd, 2018. I'm Brian McCullough. Today, Tim Cook demands a retraction from Bloomberg. Another founder flees Facebook. Replit gets a murderer's row of VC backers. And the iPhone 10R reviews are in. Here's what you missed today in the world of tech. Today, there was more fallout from that blockbuster Bloomberg Businessweek report earlier this month. Here's a refresher. Bloomberg claimed the Chinese government planted spy chips on supermicro motherboards that made it into data centers for tech giants, including Apple, Amazon Web Services, and as many as 30 other unnamed companies. Ever since that report came out, and indeed in that report, Apple, Amazon, plus a variety of government officials have denied the story full stop. Apple issued a public statement on its website titled, What Business Week Got Wrong About Apple?, and detailed step-by-step step what Apple thought about the story and the reporting process. Amazon Web Services also put up a blog post titled Setting the Record Straight on Bloomberg Businessweek's Erroneous Article. Apple CEO Tim Cook did an interview last Friday with BuzzFeed going even further, saying that Bloomberg should retract the story entirely because, quote, this did not happen. Cook went on to say, I feel they should retract their story. There is no truth in their story about Apple. They need to do the right thing, end quote. That marks the first time Apple has ever publicly called for the retraction of any news story. And Apple has been the subject of a lot of incorrect reporting over the years, including a high-profile This American Life story about Apple and China that was retracted when reporter Mike Daisy admitted to fabricating key parts of it. On Monday, Supermicro CEO Charles Liang joined Cook and said, quote, Bloomberg should act responsibly and retract its unsupported allegations, end quote. And then... Andy Jassy, the CEO of Amazon Web Services, piped up on Twitter yesterday. He wrote, quote, Tim Cook is right. Bloomberg's story is wrong about Amazon, too. They offered no proof. Story kept changing and showed no interest in our answers unless we could validate their theories. Reporters got played or took liberties. Bloomberg should retract, end quote. They're not the only ones questioning or denying the story, quoting Mac Rumors here. The UK's cybersecurity agency, the Department of Homeland Security, former FBI general counsel James Baker, and NSA senior advisor Rob Joyce, for example, have all questioned the veracity of Bloomberg's claims. End quote. For its part, Bloomberg continues to stand by the story. Here's what they told BuzzFeed. Bloomberg Businessweek's investigation is the result of more than a year of reporting, during which we conducted more than 100 interviews. 17 individual sources, including government officials and insiders at the companies, confirmed the manipulation of hardware and other elements of the attack, end quote. Cybersecurity reporter Nicole Perlroth summed up the situation way back on October 7th, tweeting, Something is wrong. Blanket denials from companies, NCSC and DHS, are very unusual. The only precedent for this is a 2014 Bloomberg article by the same author, which claimed the NSA exploited Heartbleed and was vigorously knocked down with zero follow-up by Bloomberg or correction, end quote. I saw some tweets this weekend suggesting that other news outlets had even tried to chase down the veracity of the Bloomberg story and 
backed off when they couldn't find anything to back up the story. I could go on quoting people about this situation all day, but basically we're at an impasse at this point. On the one side, you have Bloomberg sticking to its guns, but on every other side, you have companies, tech researchers, reporters from other papers, government officials, you name it, saying the story is either wrong or that there's no evidence it's right. This is indeed a very strange situation. TechCrunch is reporting today that Oculus co-founder and former CEO Brendan Uribe is leaving Facebook. This reportedly comes after internal changes in Facebook's virtual reality group, including the cancellation of the planned Rift 2 VR headset, which was to be the PC-powered successor to the popular high-end Oculus Rift device. Guess who was leading Rift 2 development? Brendan Uribe. According to TechCrunch, Uribe left because he's concerned Facebook is focusing too much on low-end standalone VR devices rather than the more powerful PC-powered handsets. This past May, Oculus released its Oculus Go headset, a $199 standalone device, and plans are still on for a standalone $399 Oculus Quest headset in the spring of 2019. Facebook, for its part, denies part of the report, saying it still has plans for new PC-based Rift VR headsets in addition to standalone units, though the company did not specifically deny canceling Arebay's Rift 2 headset. But still, this business narrative sounds painfully familiar. High-profile co-founder of a company acquired by Facebook leaves Facebook after reportedly losing control of the core product he loved. Oh yeah, and his other co-founder was already out the door. It's almost like there's a pattern here. Quoting TechCrunch, Uribe's exit comes at a time when a number of the founders of Facebook's high-profile startup acquisitions are leaving the company. Less than a month ago, Instagram co-founders Kevin Systrom and Mike Krieger announced their plans to leave the company in a decision that TechCrunch was told was partially the result of mounting tensions. WhatsApp co-founder Jan Combe left Facebook earlier this year. Uribe's fellow co-founder Palmer Lucky left Facebook in early 2017, a decision he recently recounted was not a choice that he made, end quote. Josh Constein summed it up on Twitter, quote, Facebook pushes out another acquisition founder due to differences of opinion. Oculus's Brendan Uribe saw VR for hardcore PC tethered gaming. Facebook sees it for mobile mainstream fun. Replit announced yesterday that it has raised $4.5 million in initial funding. And a $4.5 million round hardly makes headlines these days. But what I noticed was that the round was led by Andreessen Horowitz and other investors included Paul Graham, Y Combinator, and Bloomberg Beta and Research Capital. So a murderer's row of backers. What does Replit actually do? That was interesting to me also. It's a tool for coders, and it aims to replace their integrated development environment, also known as a text editor, their code repository, and their dev server. Replit is free to start using, only $7 a month for the hacker plan with more goodies, and schools have access for free or very cheap plans for students depending on the nature of the institution. The San Francisco-based startup aims to simplify the process of coding online by replacing all those independent pieces with an integrated tool. In the process, it aims to compete with GitHub, AWS, and dozens of code editing apps. Replit only has six people on staff and plans to use this influx of cash to staff up and commercialize the product. The company said developers have shipped 250,000 websites slash apps since the Replit hosting platform launched in March of this year. 
co-founded by husband and wife team Amjad Massad and Haya Ode. Replit represents a rethink of how developer tools should work in an age where maybe the only tool a developer truly needs is a web browser. Rather than pick the best in class from a bunch of apps and services, set it all up on a desktop PC and work out integration paths between all that stuff, developers can just go to Replit and start typing in their browser. Here's a quote from Replit's investment announcement. Our new goal is to build a software development platform where you can, with minimal prior experience, develop, ship, and acquire users for your apps all in the same place. Cloud computing is one of the most significant paradigm shifts in our industry, yet it remains commandable only by relatively few professionals. It's similar to when, prior to microcomputers, only big corporations and universities had mainframes. We want Replit to be the microcomputer to the cloud's mainframe, end quote. Recently, the world learned the power of artificial intelligence, a technology cybersecurity leaders have been leveraging for years. Now, as AI expands and evolves, those same security leaders are left wondering where humans fit into the next generation of AI-empowered security tools and solutions. Arctic Wolf, the industry leader in managed security operations, seeks to answer this question in their newly published report, The Human-AI Partnership. Access the insights of over 800 cybersecurity decision makers in North America and the United Kingdom to better understand how organizations are weighing the benefits and risks of deploying AI tools. Uncover the biggest obstacles to turning AI and human engineers into a formidable team. Discover why the near-term benefits of large language models are being upended by a crucial flaw in the technology. And learn what the rise of AI tools mean for human practitioners moving forward. Get your copy today at arcticwolf.com slash techmeme. That's arcticwolf.com slash techmeme. We're being sponsored today by a company on a product that longtime listeners know I have used for years and cannot literally cannot live or at least work without it. One Password. One Password combines industry-leading security with award-winning design to bring private, secure, and user-friendly password management to everyone. Companies lose hours every day just from employees forgetting and resetting passwords. A single data breach costs millions of dollars. One Password secures every sign-in to save you time and money, any device, any time. One Password lets you securely switch between iPhone. Android, Mac, and PC with convenient features like autofill for quick sign-ins. All you have to remember is the one strong account password that protects everything else. Your logins, your credit cards, secure notes, or the office Wi-Fi password. 1Password generates as many strong, unique passwords as you need and securely stores them in an encrypted vault that only you have access to. I started using 1Password, what, a decade ago? Join me and over 100,000 businesses on board the 1Password bandwagon. Because right now, my listeners get a free two-week trial at onepassword.com slash ride. That's two free weeks at the number one, the word password, all one word, dot com slash ride. Onepassword.com slash ride. The iPhone 10R reviews came out this morning, and again, they're mostly positive. The core themes seem to be that on the plus side, the 10R has a lower price. Better battery life. It comes in a bunch of colors, and its performance is almost exactly on par with Apple's highest-end latest iPhones. On the minus side, the LCD screen is no match for an OLED, the single rear camera is no match for dual rear cameras, and there's no 3D touch. Here's a roundup of key quotes from the reviews. Nilay Patel at The Verge writes, I've always been a fan of how accurate and balanced Apple's LCDs are compared to the OLEDs. 
on most Android phones, and the 10R is definitely another Apple LCD. If you're coming from an iPhone 6, 7, or 8, it will look very familiar. But it's simply not as good as Apple's OLEDs. It doesn't have the deep black levels or infinite contrast of the iPhone XS. It doesn't support HDR or Dolby Vision video playback. And in general, you can always see the border between the bezel and the edge of the display, even with a dark background, end quote. At Daring Fireball, John Gruber writes about the rear camera. Quote, portrait mode on the 10R has a few limitations. For one, it only works with human faces. The subject's face does not have to be directly facing the camera. The subject can even be in profile, but there must be a human face for the camera to recognize. It won't work with dogs, and it won't work with faceless mannequins. Portrait mode on the iPhone XS, on the other hand, although optimized for human faces, will work with inanimate objects, whether human-like or not. Lastly, portrait mode on the iPhone XR does not offer the stage lighting or stage lighting mono light effects, end quote. Matthew Panzerino at TechCrunch explains why the 10R is $250 less than the flagship 10S. Quote, on the business side, Apple is offering the iPhone XR to make sure there is no pricing umbrella underneath the iPhone XS and iPhone XS Max, and to make sure that the pricing curve is smooth across the iPhone line. It's not so much a bulwark against low-end Android. That's why the iPhone 8 and iPhone 7 are sticking around at those low prices. Instead, it's offering an affordable option that's similar in philosophy to the iPhone 8's role last year, but with some additional benefits in terms of uniformity, end quote. Lauren Good at Wired goes deeper on that point. Quote, most people, those who don't spend their lives comparing specs and staring at bezels on multiple models of new smartphones each fall, are going to be very happy with this phone when they buy it, especially if those people are upgrading from an older iPhone, which I believe will be the case for a lot of people buying the iPhone XR. They'll have a phone that's running on Apple's top-of-the-line processor. They'll have Face ID and they'll experience the learning curve that comes with an iPhone without a home button, which feels like a small price to pay for an edge-to-edge display, end quote. Finally, Brian Chen at the New York Times writes, In speed tests measuring a single computing core with a benchmarking app, the 10R was just as fast as the 10S, 49% faster than Google's Pixel 3 and 45% faster than Samsung's Galaxy S9, end quote. He also ended his review by saying, As is often the case for new gadgets, good things come to those who wait. If you resisted splurging on the 10S to wait for the 10R, you will be rewarded with a great phone and some extra cash lying around. Bloomberg reported yesterday that developers can track the uninstallation of their apps on iOS and Android and then target the specific user who uninstalled their apps using ads. Presumably, the goal is to get that person to reinstall the app. The way these uninstall tracking tools work relies on the push notification system implemented on both iOS and Android. Developers can opt to send silent push notifications to their apps. This feature is generally used to update information in the background, for example, updating a social media feed proactively or making sure an email inbox is up to date, or downloading new podcasts, say. But because every installed app has a unique ID, the developer can listen to see if a given user's app stops responding to push notifications. When that happens, it's likely that the user has uninstalled the app. From there, developers fire up their ad engines in an attempt to get the user back. According to the Bloomberg report, companies offering uninstalled trackers include AdJust, AppsFlyer, MoEngage, 
Localytics, and Clevertap. Among their customers, T-Mobile, Spotify, Yelp, and ironically, Bloomberg. There are legitimate uses for uninstall tracking. Developers might want to know if a given update led users to uninstall their app, and that might help fix bugs or even tell developers that feature updates are not welcome. The problem arises when unscrupulous developers decide to go beyond the basic knowledge that some population has uninstalled the app and get specific by targeting those users in an effort to change their behavior. Quoting the report, the tools violate Apple and Google policies against using silent push notifications to build advertising audiences, said Alex Austin, CEO of Branch Metrics Inc., which makes software for developers but chose not to create an uninstall tracker. It's just generally sketchy to track people around the Internet after they've opted out of using your product, he says, adding that he expects Apple and Google to crack down on the practice soon. Apple and Google didn't respond to requests for comment, end quote. Last up today, happy 10th birthday to Android. The Verge has an extensive visual history of the little operating system that could with screenshots that brim with nostalgia. Remember the T-Mobile G1? Bet you do, but this is not a piece that lends itself to me summarizing. Again, it's lots of visuals, so do check out the last link in the show notes and wish Android a happy 10th anniversary. So the book came out today, thanks to all of you who pre-ordered. I've not been able to get into an actual bookstore yet to see it in the wild because I've been doing press hits this morning. Shout out to KTLA's tech reporter, Rich DeMuro, and his Rich on Tech podcast. And of course, also, I had to record this podcast. But hopefully tonight, I'll hit up my local Barnes & Noble on the way home. I did, however, get to listen to the audiobook version on the way in this morning, and wow, I'm glad I let a professional do it. Timothy Andres Pabon, who narrated the audiobook, is like amazing, clear, emotional, way better at this reading things for people's ears than I am. However, I was listening to the chapter on the iPhone, and unfortunately he did pronounce OS X as OS X, which is probably a mistake I would not have made, although I do butcher people's names on this show every single day, so who am I to cast stones? Anyway, if you're reading or listening to the book, please enjoy it, and I will talk to you tomorrow.